0: my name is Dan Aston Gregory. I'm not a journalist by background I'm an entrepreneur of the curious mind. I spent seven or eight years in in senior leadership within the corporate world before eventually wanting to carve my own destiny and start my own business which I started in 2012 and I've worked now with thousands of entrepreneurs around the world. I've worked with Fortune 100 companies, I've worked I actually worked with governments, I've run entrepreneurship workshops for for many different students, I've worked with 40 different universities across the UK and Ireland. Uh, A part of my frustrations have really come from this lack of debate in fact in the media we've seen a one-sided story, there's been a lack of critical voice, there's been a lack of independent journalism, that the virus moves from person to person and that the vaccine is a safe effect. That's two simple beliefs that people have swallowed with ease because they've taken that complex information and oversimplified it. Moral authority has been assumed by the state and the big companies. Uh, we've seen censorship around natural immunity and what people can do to actually bolster their own bodily response.
1: If they're trying to stop you saying something, it's probably
0: worth listening for. I was concerned what my clients might think, what my family might think, what my friends might think, but to be honest, the issues that I was witnessing were too big to stand on the sidelines and ignore. In terms of the pandemic response, it is completely flatlined the democratic process. But that conversation with my MP broke my heart. He made it clear that we will never get the transparency of information that we need. I've completely lost faith in any politician to be able to influence the trajectory of this pandemic. Nine out of 10 people I asked said, we're doing it to get our freedoms back. And only one person said that they were doing it to protect others. You know, Lockdowns, uh, the behavioural science, you know, looking to accelerate the path to vaccination, all of the things that have been Problematic throughout this response. They're looking to put it into international treaties uh, in preparation for the next. Preparation for, preparation the, next. for the next. Hi there,
1: I'm Rob Verkert. Welcome to Speaking Naturally. Today we're going to be speaking to a very special guest, Dan Aston Gregory. He heads up the Pandemic Podcast that's had over five million views, and we're going to be talking about his background from entrepreneur to activist the extraordinary predicament we're in, but most importantly, how we emerge from that. And it leads us to an incredibly important event that Dan is organizing in London for the 17th of July this year called Make Lockdowns History. It says it all in the title. You can go to makelockdownshistory.org. You can sign up for it and roll. We'll be there, we'll be pushing it out. It's about creating a movement for change. So please get involved. And let's speak naturally to Dan. Dan, fantastic to have you on Speaking Naturally. And uh, I seem to recall the last time we were in this situation, you were asking me questions. It's my turn to put the questions to you. You're happy with that?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Great to see you again and uh, pleasure talking to you.
1: So, so Dan, you, you've had a lot of people looking at your pandemic podcast. Um, what What's the numbers?
0: Now it's 7 uh, million, isn't it? Yeah, we've just reached over 5 million uh, views now from a standing start at the end of October last year. Um, really pleased with the reach we've had, um, but uh, not resting our laurels ready to, to try and influence more minds and hearts with our content, which is really designed to get people to question everything. That's our tagline. Just, just to simply not accept things at face value, but uh, to look beneath the bonnet to see uh, some of the inner workings of what's going on, uh, because uh, as I found, not everything is as it seems.
1: So, uh, questioning everything in a censored environment. We, we're we're on speaking naturally because we also we, we're one strike away from losing our YouTube platform. Um, I think you've been you can't do Facebook Live anymore, can you?
0: Not right so, now. I've got a three-day pass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For talking yeah. about na- natural immunity, which which would be an interesting uh, segue into what we'll talk about. So,
1: and the interesting thing of your five million views, you probably have a lot of people who've now realized if they're trying to stop you saying something, it's probably worth listening for. So is that has that been your experience?
0: <laughs> so, I mean, I did have some of my followers say um, it's a badge of honor. Uh, we, I've tried very, very hard to avoid censorship. Um, everything we do, we've got a research team, we've got a content management team, we've got an editorial team who work hard in the background to make sure everything we talk about is well referenced, well sourced. Um, uh, but despite our best efforts and we've done over 250 episodes now, um, we're starting to see these pressures and uh, there's some real trends around where those pressures are, um, which, which I find deeply concerning, actually, not only for the present moment, but for, for where things potentially could head from here.
1: So, Dan, what, what is your, your main concern? You want to see transformation. You want to ask a lot of questions with 15 months and beyond into a pandemic. What are people looking for? What what would you like to see the future bring to us?
0: Well, I think underpinning what we'd like to see in the future is I think what, if we kind of take a step back, there's been a lack of debate uh, around a lot of the key subject matters that we've addressed on the podcast. In fact, some of the issues that we've been censored for uh, include natural treatments, which I can't even I can't even use the names of these natural treatments on the podcast. I, I mean, I think in the build up to our discussion, Rob, I think we had a promotional post which was taken down for for referencing the um, use of vitamin C, uh, it, which, you, you know, I, I've grown up all my life uh, learning about the powers of vitamin C and how it's good for our health. I not even remember hearing about that at school. Um, but we got censored for that. Um, we, we got censored for treatments, which are potentially life-saving treatments uh, that could um, be used prophylactically to to actually prevent illness, but also to, to reduce the severity of disease or even prevent the severity of disease from occurring, uh, significantly reducing mortality. We've seen issues around that uh, censored. Uh, we've seen censorship around uh, natural immunity and what people can do to actually bolster their own bodily response to uh, external pathogens, including COVID-19. So uh, a part of my frustrations have really come from this lack of debate. In fact, in the media, we've seen a one-sided story. There's been a lack of critical voice. There's been a lack of independent journalism. You know, people have referred to me as an independent investigative journalist. I'm, I'm not a journalist by background. I'm an entrepreneur with a curious mind uh, that's led me to ask a lot of questions. But I do feel at this point in time in the UK, we've just had, you know, we were supposed to be at the end, the tail end of our lockdown easing. Uh, it's been predictably delayed by another four weeks, speculated to two to four weeks, I always predicted it'd be at least a month. Uh, and I actually do think it will go beyond a month. Um, uh, but people are now becoming frustrated. You know, the, the, there is no clear, you're People are been being told that the vaccination strategy was the way out of this, um, despite the majority of the population in the UK now being at least having a single dose, if not double dose, um, the, the the goalposts keep moving, so uh, people are very very frustrated. I think more and more people are now asking questions about what's what's really going on here and how how do we exit this?
1: And with, with, um, with a, a a threat of another wave, a more serious wave coming in the autumn. So everyone thought I think there was going to be a bit of a summer reprieve where they could let their hair down and uh, sit in a beer garden and have a drink and and uh, not wear masks. And you know it's not looking like that at all. And things could get much worse. So um, let's just look at first of all we keep using this term pandemic and mm. we use it because last March the WHO declared pandemic status you and I know that it's quite easy given the broad definition of a pandemic to be in a perennial pandemic Indeed. so some of us are saying well we need to change the language
0: Indeed.
1: Um, um, so first of all in terms of a pandemic that poses a risk to the public you're also talking to a lot of people um scientists experts politicians and others um what is your view are we genuinely in a pandemic or are we just in an endemic and do we need to change essentially the label that is keeping maintaining this emergency crisis
0: I, you know, uh, ongoing i think you raised a really important question so i think you know if we look at I mean, the, the the definition has obviously changed. I mean, I spoke to uh, Dr. Wolfgang Vodag about this on our recent interview. Uh, you know, prior to twenty uh, two thousand and nine, um, the, the the definition included reference to the severity of disease. So it wasn't just the prevalence of disease. It it referenced you know hospitalizations and mortality specifically, um, which are, are are important drivers um, of a pandemic historically. Now that that shifted in two thousand and nine to reflect. Uh, purely around case volumes um, uh, with with an absence of the severity of disease, so that means you could have a very very mild virus or pathogen uh, growing um, around the world, and it could cause very limited limited damage whatsoever, uh, but that would still be described as a pandemic based upon the current terms now, I think most people would agree yet yeah, certainly March April last year, where we did see a global Rise in cases of COVID nineteen. Uh, that that at that point in time, uh, we were experiencing a global pandemic. Um, uh, again, there's, some people would dispute that, but but nonetheless, um, certainly at that period in time, there was very very clearly something happening. Uh, but since that point, we've seen we've seen spikes in cases over the kind of winter respiratory season. Um, but certainly where we are now, um, we certainly at the Endemic end of that winter spike. I mean, it's summer here in the United Kingdom. Um, what the future holds is unknown. I think this virus has shown itself to be a, it has followed seasonal patterns typically. Um, so, what will happen beyond here going into autumn and winter, we may well see a resurgence uh, or we may not uh, of the virus. We don't know yet. Um, but I think to describe it as a pandemic now would be, is, is false because it's, it's, you know that, that would indicate that cases are growing uh, around the world. If you look, I was looking at the Euromomo data this morning, in fact, at the European data, very much the patterns are going the opposite direction um, in decline. So it's certainly endemic phase of, of its current trajectory. What will happen next is hard to determine, um, but, but if we do, and my prediction is that we will see, despite all of the claims around the efficacy of the vaccinations, I do believe we will see a winter resurgence. Um, which, which is why uh, for the last 12 months, I personally have been uh, calling for uh, a restoration of what uh, really is the traditional pandemic playbook for managing epidemics and pandemics um, in the absence of lockdowns, because my, my concern with all of this is as our obsession with cases, and we can talk about that because there's there's some real issues around that right now in the UK, um, uh, leads us to, to kind of, obsessively react when we see any 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 emergence of cases and again without reference to severity of disease and my my my, my real concern is we'll be back into lockdowns again into winter uh, and the cycle will continue so i, I do believe we need a, a mindset shift in a and, and to change our approach in order to, to enter into an exit phase you
1: you you know
0: one of the things that we have now that we've never had before is this
1: molecular biology periscope We look at the world in a different way. So we're using molecular biology to not only determine presence absence, we know that they were doing it wrong. The cycle threshold on PCR was massively overrated. Everyone knew back then that you were going to be detecting fragments. So you would find many, many more cases. Obviously, there's been a lot of pushback on the science there. And now we're, you know, on the whole have below 30 and a CT, so it's a little bit more accurate, but of course, we have to see more rapid tests being done, which are less accurate. So, and the other thing, obviously, when you've got this molecular biology periscope, is you also can spot new variants. Now, we we haven't done that ever before yeah. with a disease. So we start by talking about whether the, the, the labeling is wrong in terms of this pandemic. Now, let's just look at this molecular biology tool that we're using. How do we unpick that? A lot of people would say, molecular biology and infectious diseases, these are tools of the future. We're gonna see more and more of this. You could also say the the use of, of new synthetic biology vaccines are tools for the future. Um, and uh, we're gonna see more of that. However, you can also argue that these are the very mechanisms that are being used to perpetuate this extraordinary loss of civil liberties, you know, destruction of economies, um, extraordinary losses and harms being done in areas that are outside of COVID. So, you know, your, your overriding thesis is we've got to get out of this peculiar state that we're, we're locked in. We're, we're kind of on a merry-go-round that we're having difficulty to know how to get off. How do we unpick the molecular biology end of things?
0: Well, it's a very big question, I, and I absolutely agree. Again, you know, we've done some freedom of information requests recently uh, in the United Kingdom. Um, some of the NHS trusts are still using CT thresholds of above 40, 40, 45, um, which, which clearly uh, is, is more likely, particularly, again, in a low-prevalence environment, which we're in right now, uh, is, is more likely to, uh, to, to detect false... Hey. You Post- know
1: Bayes' theorem. You've got it. <laughs> Matt Hancock does not seem to understand Bayes' theorem that as the prevalence goes down, the false positive rate goes up. This is an incredibly important concept, but you've just indicated a, a good understanding of it. That that will change the view of politicians, but politicians don't seem to have any power anymore. What's 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 happened to democracy?
0: Well, this is a very, this is, I mean, this is My makes my heart sink, to be quite frank. I, I I. spoke to, I arranged a one-to-one phone call with my MP, where I live here in Bristol, the city of Bristol in the southwest of England. And we had a 20-minute conversation. Um, he, he knows <laughs> what I've been doing. Um, I've, I've written to him many times throughout the pandemic. Uh, and I said, look, uh, I want to start to examine, examine some of the data on a local level to start to to, to, to put some of the things that I've been speaking about on the podcast into practice on a local level and to get some real evidence. Um, and we talked about this issue around testing um, and the lack of transparency, not just on the cycle thresholds, but, but we have no data in the United Kingdom. When there's a positive test, there's no corresponding information about um, any presence of symptoms. So we've got no clinical factors that have been recorded. So, uh, and there's no then tracking of whether it becomes, if it becomes symptomatic. So if you test positive, how many of those then go on to become symptomatic? There's, there's no evidence, there's no track of that. There's no there's no transparent data on demographics. So uh, right now, for instance, in the United Kingdom, we've seen this upturn in, in cases. Uh, but what most people don't realize is this is within seven to 11 year olds. Um, and this has only come from the ONS data in the UK. Uh, and, and, and most of that is based on estimates. Um, so we have we have this complete lack of transparency. But then I had this conversation with my MP and I was saying, look, what what's it gonna take what do we need to do in order to obtain? Uh, because there's there's two there's two problems here. One, there's data that is being collected but is isn't transparently available. Uh, but then there's also data that we should have been collecting for over twelve months but simply haven't been. Which which as an entrepreneur, as a business owner, you know, I rely on the metrics in my business in order to be able to manage my business. You know, without that, without a complex, a comprehensive dashboard, I can't run my business. And and and, and I, if I was running the pandemic as a business. I would have no idea where we are. I have no idea where we're heading, where we've come from. So we've got all of these issues, but that conversation with my MP broke my heart because I said, "You know what? essentially, he, he, he made it clear that we will never get the transparency of information that we need. Um, even if he wrote to every single MP in the country and they demanded the transparency, there's still the likelihood of actually receiving that information is minimal. But he also said this independent inquiry that's being tabled in the United Kingdom is likely to be pushed back until after the next general election to, to avoid any uh, scrutiny ahead of an election uh, and it will be run internally by the government you know so invalidating the independent review part uh and likely to be drawn out over a period of years and will never get to a conclusive argument so it, it's in terms of the pandemic response it is completely uh, uh, flatlined the um democratic process well
1: what was his personal view? What was your MP's personal view on the issue of testing and the use of cases as a mechanism to keep driving this pandemic along?
0: Well, I think the, the MPs have become trained to, to give their stock responses to these situations and simply acknowledge that there could be a problem there. Um, uh, but but uh, y- you know the government is doing what it's doing and it's not being held accountable. It's not being transparent and ultimately it's the same everywhere in the world which was what he actually said to me it's the same everywhere so well that doesn't make it excusable <laughs> that doesn't make it acceptable and then he went on to give examples in other areas in terms he's, he's the committee he's that he's the chair of a, a select committee and he explained he has the same problems in other areas i said well this is broken why did you go into politics you know i, I i've completely lost faith in in any 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 politician to be able to influence the trajectory of this policy of this pandemic
1: Dan, Dan you, you're an entrepreneur turned activist, um, and um, I want to hear just a little bit about what your entrepreneurial background was. And then I also want to, I've been an activist for 40 years, and I one of the things that we all know in activism is that it's kind of one step at a time. And at the moment, there are so many. This is a very complex issue with many, many problems that are very hard to identify and pick and a lot of the energy in activism is spread over many areas Um, and i know you're going to be developing this wonderful conference in next month that's going to be picking on these issues there has to be some very discrete targets for activism to be successful and i want to really pick your brains on what these are because we need people to understand you you're into consciousness you you believe that there is a much higher level of awareness so can I just hear first of all about your entrepreneurial background and let's look at what you're doing as an activist?
0: Yeah, I think everything in my life is always, it's, it's taken, you know, lots of self-analysis and personal development to really understand myself. Um, but one of the things that has always been a tenant of mine is this natural curiosity. You know, ever since a child, you know, I was the kid that would Foolishly, put my finger in the electric socket to figure out how it works. You know, it's uh, you know, I I I would be pride I always. Here. You're still here. <laughs> I'm still here. But you know,
1: I- in the top hole.
0: Yes, uh, but uh, I, but yeah. I've always I've always wanted to figure out how things worked, and that's something that's always been underpinned throughout my life. Uh, and I spent I spent seven or eight years in in senior leadership within um, the corporate world um, before eventually wanting to carve my own destiny and and start my own business, which I started in 2012. Had, had kind of three years of stress, struggle and sacrifice as I um, got in my own way, ultimately. Um, I had everything I needed to succeed, but that's a whole different story around how I you know, transform my own kind of self-esteem uh, and self-confidence in order to be able to, to, to really grow a business. Um, but uh, throughout the last eight, nine, 10 years of being self-employed um, as an entrepreneur, and I've worked now with thousands of entrepreneurs around the world i've worked with fortune 100 companies i've worked i actually worked with governments i've worked with the consulate in denmark um it's very senior leaders um but my passion has always been working with entrepreneurs and transforming ideas into reality so a lot of people say what 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 right does an entrepreneur have to speak about what's going on here and i said well firstly i think we all we're all going through this and we all have a right to an opinion and a perspective and and uh, to commentate on how this this thing is affecting our lives because it's experience, the experience we have, cannot be taken away from any one of us. But nonetheless, as an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs are really natural problem solvers. You know that they they focused on building solutions to, to to problems, either on a minor scale or or a major scale, to try and transform the world. So, the scientific method is actually very, very, um, very, very uh, important part of entrepreneurship. In fact, I've run. Um, entrepreneurship workshops for for many different students. I've worked with 40 different universities across the UK and Ireland, teaching the principles of entrepreneurship. And we always start with, what is the problem we're trying to solve? And it is founded on the the scientific method of beginning with a a hypothesis. What What is our assumption about the situation we're seeking to tackle? And then how can we validate? How do we test that problem in order to then prototype solutions and then you know, test and, and, and validate those solutions. So the scientific method is very much a, a part of entrepreneurship. But also, if you, if you look at many of the great entrepreneurs throughout history and business leaders, they surround themselves with people who have more knowledge than, than they do in the specific field. You know, Henry, Henry Ford was not necessarily an expert in motor cars, but he surrounded himself with engineers who, who understood how to take his concepts and build a motor car. So an entrepreneur is uniquely placed in some ways to understand problems, and and that for me has been, has been the driving force throughout this. is is witnessing a scale of problems that I don't believe have been adequately solved, and it reached a point of personal leverage in twenty twenty, when I started to see. And my my wife and I were planning to start a family at that point. Um, due, baby's due in September. Very excited. Life changing hey, moment. Congratulations! <laughs> yeah, thank you. I've um, just become a grandparent. So. I know. Congratulations to you yeah, as well. Yeah. Thank um, you. So, so major moments, but, 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 but these things are driving forces. And it was a point of leverage for me when I could see children going back to school, uh, it, it being separated in the playground, queuing apart. But then I started to see images around the world of children sat in perspex boxes and people, uh, you know, children sat in their coats with the windows wide open in order to ensure airflow and something just broke inside me. My heart broke. And I just thought, I can't. Because I'd been very critical, been vocal. I'd been, you know, I'd been analysing what's been going on. I'd read thousands of articles and papers by that point, but I'd not had the courage to really step up and come forward and say say my piece about what I was witnessing happening. But something triggered inside of me at that point and said enough is enough. And I think a lot of people are reaching that enough is enough moment now. But for me, it happened last year when I saw that around, uh, happening around the world of the children. I thought, you know, these these young people uh, are at the least at risk. And in fact, the evidence at that point showed it very, 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 uh, Infinitesimally small risk to children, but not only that. The majority of the evidence was was showing that the the children were having very little impact on community transmission, very little impact on uh, transmission amongst the the teachers and the, and the staff that was working in education. Uh, and yet all of these protocols were being put in place. I, I thought enough is enough. You know, I'd witnessed enough by that point uh, and had to had to change tact. And and that's difficult as an entrepreneur. You know, I have. You know, I started out, I mentioned I struggled when I first started out in business, but I built a reputation. You know, I worked with major companies and major leaders. So to, to then vocally speak out about some of the things that happened in the world, it was a big decision. You know, I had fears around doing that. I was, I was concerned what my clients might think, what my peers might think, what my family might think, what my friends might think. But to be honest, the issues that I was witnessing were too big to stand on the sidelines and ignore. Um, you know, I, I, I saw it happen in 2009. I was working in financial services at that point um, when we went through a major recession uh, off the back of the banking crisis and people buried their head in the sands and pretended it wasn't happening. I wasn't willing to be one of those people. I had, I had to stand yeah. up. So that so was the, bit-
1: birth, the the birth of an activist and and, and then you saw the, the messaging about flattening the curve and then you said, well, you heard that they were going to create, you know, warp speed uh, vaccines. We've now got vaccines. We're at the cusp of having these kids who've been um, protected by Perspex for a while. Incidentally, you've you also heard that the Perspex now is going to be abandoned. Yes. And, um, you will know that there are very, very few Perspex recycling, acrylic recycling facilities in the UK. My heart bleeds at the thought of the amount of Perspex that could ap- end up in landfill. Absolutely. And um, I think that's an important job to be done, to be... Um, Ensuring that that perspex isn't just put into landfill, um, but but now children are the next likely target for vaccines, and we're being told that you know lockdown will continue. So, as an activist, where what do you think the next steps are? Where are well, we going with this?
0: It, I mean, it's very high because what what we're facing here is uh, is an exceptional level of pre-existing beliefs around. Um, the pandemic that have been formed through the constant repetition in the media and through the government, but also historic beliefs around vaccinations. But but the, the reality is this is a very different vaccine. The, the vaccines are very, very different. Um, we have seen unprecedented levels of uh, of side effects, adverse reactions and mortality amongst adults. And in fact, some of the side effects, you know, data out of Israel very clearly shows is actually more detrimental to the younger uh, population. And we're in this Mindset of no one is safe until we're all safe, but but no one is questioning what that actually means, and and we, we've been, we've all been led to believe that this is a deadly virus that does not discriminate. Yet the actual science, the actual data, couldn't tell a, a, a even more you know a, a, a more different story, a, more yeah. of a different story. You know, it's, it's very clearly an age graduated uh, virus, but not only age. Age is it's not just age; it's a major determinant factor. It's it's pre-existing uh, comorbidities, uh, obesity. Uh, so so for the, for the large portion of society uh the risk is it, you know, the, well the risk is uneven it's 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 there there is no it's not an equally distributed risk yet we're behaving as though it is uh not only in terms of our mindset but the response through the vaccination campaign um you know i i don't that 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 just
1: a second the the vaccination campaign is not saying to children or to parents of children you need this vaccine to protect yourself you need this vaccine to protect your parents and your grandparents how does that kind of guilt feel for a child and isn't it easier when the population has been educated to receive the vaccines just to get your kids to roll their sleeves I mean that's where we're going isn't it
0: it is where we're going and it's, it's pure behavioral science you know in fact do you know you can you can gather some of the um, well in fact again that was one of the things that i saw last year and prior to the rollout of the vaccines is some of the marketing messaging that was being tested for vac for vaccines and and some of the behavioral science that was being developed around this using you know nudge nudging and all different other uh, methods of compliance in order to increase the uptake um, under the guise of doing it for social good but the reality is moral authority has been assumed by the state and the big companies you know this, this idea that, that, that it is the moral righteous thing to do for all of us to roll up our sleeve and almost it almost feels like conscription into the army during wartime where we're, we're almost all being treated as soldiers in this battle because that's how it's been positioned throughout this it's, it's, it's a warlike effort but but, but 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 this perception has created this idea that we all need to take medical intervention. Now, I'm a firm believer in the idea of focus protection in working on methodologies and interventions that could support the, the most at risk, which has been very clear since the very beginning of the pandemic, the early data out of China, it's really not deviated much at all from that initial data. It's, it's clear who the risk populations are. But here we are now faced with this experimental intervention potentially being thrust upon children, and, uh, and I also believe for teenagers there's a you know i think that i'm very hopeful for the generations coming through that the the generation gen Z, and i've studied gen Z, have looked at their beliefs and their values they they are a generation that want to transform the world they believe in making the world a better place but unfortunately that desire if you look at the behavioral science in terms of what they're using they're captivating that desire to do things for the social good and wrapping it around this medical intervention campaign saying you're, you're you know you're going to do this to protect others but but there is never in history have we seen a, 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 a medical um health principles that, that operate this way public health principles you know it, it, it protecting the individual is the focus you know if you're at risk that's that's the population we need to be focusing on uh, but, but there is zero clarity on the at-risk population. I was I was talking to a 21-year-old just the other day about their you know their perception about the situation. They believe that five percent of people their age had died due to COVID-19. Five percent. I said, well, let's let's put that in practical terms. Talk, tell me how many friends you have. You know, you're a university student. Oh, 50, hundred close friends. Okay, so five of them have died. No, none of them have died. Okay, have any of them got sick? No, none of them got sick. Have any of them had a t- positive test? Yeah, one person had a positive test. Did they get sick? No. Okay, so where did this five percent number come from? Oh, I don't know. I think you know, I just assumed it was that many because of all the stats. So there's this flawed perception of of, of risk. Uh, uh, but they're they're being led to believe now, and you know, I follow up the questions where you know I said, "Why are you even entertaining having the vaccine?" They said, "Well, we need to get our freedoms back." Yeah, you know, nine out of ten people I asked said we're doing it to get our freedoms back, and only one person said that they were doing it to protect others. Not one of them is is doing it for medical reasons. <laughs>
1: exactly look we found exactly the same thing the from a environmental point of view obviously we we came into this having raised a lot of attention about the climate problem that we were facing and biodiversity as well and you're absolutely right gen z deeply concerned i i still have two gen z children and they are very very deeply concerned about it and and um the strange thing is that what has not happened is that many respects the idea of using experimental product on children is really a very different kettle of fish to saving the environment because of that social external sort of consciousness and awareness you have it is actually closer to the concerns that we all had in the post-world war period um, around the Nuremberg trials that was when lessons were learned from the holocaust and um, ironically, that discussion on Nuremberg in relation to use of experimental vaccines on children today is now viewed by all the major social media channels as a conspiracy theory. It's and crazy. yet it is yep. entirely yep. factually based. Absolutely. So, so look, if we—I know your your goal is also to put a very positive spin on, in terms of how we can sort of elevate the levels of consciousness and awareness how we can create healing just talk us through some of these ideas that that instead of thinking about this doomsday scenario all the time how can we see a more positive way out of this
0: i I think this is the key i i think the 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 level of suffering that the humanity is willing to tolerate is is a reflection of the consciousness that exists amongst the population And i think what we're witnessing right now is um can you just explain consciousness because it has many many meanings Uh, and
1: um from your are we just looking at external perception awareness internal
0: how do you see it i mean that you're absolutely right It's a multi-dimensional question that's yeah that's one we could spend hours discussing (laughs) yeah Uh, but i think for, for the purpose of this conversation around having conscious awareness being fully present in the moment and actually being Uh, grounded in what I call equilibrium because what we've seen over the last 12 months is is, is a consistent pattern of fear. You know, fear has been the driving force and, and excess fear can take us out of that present moment awareness. It can take us out of consciousness. It can take us away from our own personal values. It can take us away from our own critical thoughts. In fact, there's been lots of uh, scientific evidence around the the impact of cortisol on you know, human psychology uh, and uh, for, for a lot of us and interesting enough my corporate career we used to do some work on crisis management and witness how people behave in crisis even if it's manufactured you know during the, the workshops we used to run for crisis management they were manufactured crises yet people would still respond as though they're real. Um, And you can see how people respond differently. And I do believe and, you know, whether you look at the Milgram experiments or um, the the work of um, um, uh,
1: Hanselius and the stress response, you you disengage the the reasoning, the the frontal cortex, the reasoning part of your brain, you move back to your more primitive midbrain. And you can't think straight. I mean, Absolutely. that's the
0: reality, isn't it? Absolutely. You look at the work of um, Professor Lombardo and the Stanford Prison Experiment, how people's character changes under these pressured situations. So so a lot of people, I believe, have, 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 have moved away from that normal conscious awareness where they're able to more critically evaluate the situation. Our ability to perceive risk is, is can be completely flawed. So I, I think really, firstly, it's, it's regrounding ourselves, finding a sense of equilibrium, because you've got... On one hand, you've got people who are still afraid deeply of the virus, and you can see that in people's behaviours—they cross the road to avoid other human beings. You're wearing masks outside, all these different things. Uh, but you also have, then, on the other end, you know, extreme fear of that there's some, you know, uh, extreme agenda to wipe out the planet. And you know, the, the, there's always between those two polarities, there is there is some level of truth. But until we regain our conscious awareness of what's really happening, regrounded in evidence, it's very difficult. So that's baseline. Getting a baseline. Back to what I say, having your feet firmly on the ground, you know, not not falling through the foreboards and, uh, you know, losing sight of what's real. Uh, but then above that, beyond that is, is really about uh, what I call core human values and how they inter- inter- intersperse with our, our, our reality and, and re- re- returning to a sense of love, joy, inner peace. Because when we operate from these internal emotional levers, we do see the world differently. And I think, the, the, the kind of erosion of ethics and morals that we've seen uh, in the last 12 months is nothing new. Technology has moved at such a speed in the last decade or two that, uh, you know, morals and ethics kind of an afterthought. Uh, and I think we, we, we've kind of seen that with the vaccination campaign, but people are still in this-
1: Mutual mutual respect is something, it's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> but people seem to have lost the ability to offer respect for those who have a different view, the, the level of intolerance for people who decide not to maintain what we now call the mainstream narrative is is unprecedented in my lifetime so that dissenting views immediately are marginalized so i i I love that idea it's just how do you do it presumably getting a podcast out of more people
0: well it reaches. yeah
1: it's a parallel narrative isn't it really it's about a parallel narrative so that people can actually start thinking for themselves and I, i think you're absolutely right if you can get People back into their thinking parts, their reasoning parts of their brain. Um, you know, I, I, I think scientifically, in terms of how it works from belief systems and knowledge bases, if you can align those two things, you, you, you have this sense that you're right. And I think the difficulty that those of us who do not support the mainstream narrative have is that our opponents believe that they are completely coherent between their belief system and you know, the, the, their knowledge base because their knowledge base is not really their own knowledge base. It's something that's been drip-fed to them by the media through publicist group and a whole range of different channels. It's a very, very organized drip-feeding program. Um, and their belief systems are, are born out of, as you've rightly said, fear. So yeah. it's how we trans brought people into this more empowered position. Now, your um, Make Lockdown's History event in July is going to be really the chance for people to come together to create a platform and a movement, essentially. This is activism in action. Tell us about it. What's happening in July?
0: Well, it begins with actually, we're, we're, we're really, really striving to... Find an opportunity to open the world, the, open the doors of debate. You know, we we positioned the event in the midst of July. On, on a practical note, we had to avoid the European football championships and Wimbledon and all these other things that distract people's attention. Um, but but really, we believed at the peak of the summer, this would be an opportunity when we, again looking back at the trajectory last year, we should be out of hysteria at least momentarily. You know, we should be out of that hysteria place where we can have that conscious awareness and we can have a more uh, informed debate so make lockdowns history is a one day event and we've we've got academia we've got scientists we've got political commentators we've got a a whole host of of, of credible experts over the course of 10 sessions panel discussions and uh, uh, keynote speech short kind of TEDx style keynote speeches which actually uh, you could determine it as an activist activity but really it's our it's our way of, of trying to and the, the, the event is open. We're, we're running it in, um, a, 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 in a venue in London. In fact, the Royal College of Physicians. Uh, you know, it's, it's a credible venue. And we're inviting the media, tier one, tier two media. We're inviting academics. We're inviting the SAGE group. We're inviting the independent SAGE group. We're inviting the critical voices. The, we're inviting the supporters of lockdowns um, to come and join us for one day of, 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 of debate. And, and to actually to witness another side of the story. Uh, but we're also going to be live streaming this event around the world. And we do believe we will be able to reach an audience of, of millions of people uh, in doing that uh, and hopefully provoke uh, provoke the media and the public to to start seeing the world differently. Because I truly believe, regardless of what your current beliefs are and your current perceptions of the world are, we do need to shift our mindset and we do need to shift our approach in order to responsibly exit, whatever we call this situation, pandemic or otherwise, however we badge it, however we label it, we've had it, we've had an experience. Uh, but but if we don't change the way we think about this experience, then we will continue to experience more of the same. And as Einstein said, you know, to, to, to do the same thing over and over again is insanity. But that's what we're faced with. We're faced with more lockdowns, more restrictions, None of us want to see any harm caused from the virus, but at the same time, we can no longer ignore the harms that have been caused by policy and the second order consequences uh, of those policy decisions, which are now far more wide ranging than simply health outcomes and economic outcomes. We're seeing we're seeing societal change at a level that that we've never seen before, and, and and not all of that is good. So this event, this one day event, is is what we believe is our shot. It's our shot to try and globally shift the perception about how we can respond to this pandemic, and look at how we can responsibly change course and course correct so we can change the trajectory and hopefully move move beyond this phase uh, and, and exit.
1: Um, where do people go? To- where, where do people go to get more information about Make Lockdowns History?
0: You can go to makelockdownshistory.org. Um, we've, got a, we've got a landing page there which will tell you all about the event. You can register. Uh, I encourage people to register for, for that. That It will be live streamed around the world. Uh, if you're an academic or you're a, you're a scientist uh, and you're interested or a member of the press and you'd like to come and join us uh, at the event, then there's also a way for you to sign up via the website as well.
1: No, that that's fantastic. I think um, one of the things I want to finish on is this idea that um, its the idea of dealing with complexity. We're, we're dealing with um, a health crisis. We're dealing with a, a crisis of, of of communication linked to the amount of censorship. We're dealing with a transition in the way in which those of us who've been living in democratic countries have been governed. So it's definitely a political crisis. There's now an economic crisis on top of that. Um, so it's it's a multi-dimensional beast that we're dealing with. And, um, you know, complexity is something that I think people are getting less tolerant of, of being able to handle. People want simple messages. And the reality is what we're faced with is massive amounts of uncertainty. The, the, the greatest certainty that we're pointed to by um, governments are the result of, you know, scenario modeling, which is, um, you know, whatever data you put into it, it's going to be as good as that that data. But there's so many variables that who's to say it's going to be right. We've seen, you know, some models being very far out. So how do we address this issue of getting complexity and uncertainty across to people?
0: I mean, this is a fantastic question, uh, because I actually believe that complexity has been oversimplified. And that's probably why we're facing what we're seeing. You know, because if you think about this, most people have been led to believe, well, well it's true, you know, the virus pass, passes from person to person. But what people have been led to believe is that everyone is a vector for disease, that every one of us is sick until proven healthy. And that, uh, you, you know, this virus mysteriously moves from person to person. Uh, or, 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 or that it's just lurking in parks. There's actually been signs on parks saying the virus is in this park. It's like, well... Or, only if or
1: above two metres
0: in the air. <laughs> or above two meters. So, so people have said, okay, well, actually, then I need to stay away from other human beings because they could be, or either they or I could pass on the virus. Now, they could be completely healthy individuals. You know, this idea of asymptomatic transmission has underpinned this simplicity, but it's now led people to believe that other human beings are a threat which, which, which that oversimplification becomes very difficult to argue because you actually have to go through the complexity to explain the, the, the viral dynamics and, and, and how uh, you, the, the, there is a distinction between uh, asymptomatic and symptomatic transmission, but then also all of the different mechanisms that a virus can, can, can be spread. But then similarly with vaccines, again, vaccines, simple lines, safe and effective. That's, that's people's belief system around this. So you've got the oversimplification.
1: Which, which, is, which is patently false from it, the data we have.
0: It is, but it's the oversimplification that it's easy for people to swallow. You know, both of those ideas are easy for people to swallow, that the virus moves from person to person and that the vaccine is a safe and effect. That's two simple beliefs that people have swallowed with ease because they've taken that complex information and oversimplified it. Now that over- oversimplification means that we've lost all ability to have rational debate because it is a complex issue. So you're absolutely right. The challenge is how do we transform that complexity into simplicity, but not oversimplicity to the point where we miss the fundamental assumptions that have been flawed uh, throughout this. Because I do believe, you know, the opening session of Make Lockdown's history is going to be about the flawed assumptions that have underpinned the pandemic response. Because if we don't get to that level of complexity where we can tackle those assumptions, then we're going to continue doing the same thing. So,
1: And we've got to learn from those lessons. I mean, this is why I think Nuremberg is is so fitting, because the whole idea coming out of the Second World War is let's learn from it, let's see if we can... You know, And obviously the, the findings in Nuremberg have been t- turned into uh, international treaties, yet now probably for the first time we're not taking note of it and the consequences could be pretty devastating. So we, we have to find ways of learning from history as well, don't we?
0: Absolutely. And I, I actually think, unfortunately, the opposite thing is happening. They're talking about pandemic treaties. It's, it's in discussion. The World Health Organization have put this idea forward. But the same actors that have been responsible for the lessons and the flaws that, that have, have created are essentially looking to, in my view, they're looking to bake in the, the, the roadmap that we've witnessed. You know, lockdowns, uh, the behavioural science, the, 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 you know, looking to accelerate the path to vaccination, all of the things that have been problematic throughout this response are now looking, they're looking to put it into international treaties uh, in preparation for the next. Yeah, which which yeah. It, it, it's about accelerating. It. Actually, I my view on this is it's about um, baking in the needs of the vested the vested interests of those that the, the pharmaceutical industry that seek to, to you know that they always say, don't let a good crisis go to wait and uh, to waste rather. And there is a lot of actors that are certainly capitalising on this opportunity. They've um, been waiting in the wings for this for a long time. Uh, but the reality is, if we're not careful, these things could get um, baked into policy. So we absolutely do need uh, a critical evaluation of what's happened here. Um, and to make sure that these lessons are learned, and that we don 't repeat the same mistakes again and again for our, for our, for our purposes that make lockdown 's history, that is one of the big things that we want to address is how do we how do we avoid this again in the future and how do we how do we make sure accountability is is placed firmly at the seat of those who have ignored who have, who, have, who have ignored these problems because we 've got evidence of of information being submitted to the world health organization we 've got evidence of information being set, submitted to the uk government and it 's just been Ignored, suppressed, withheld, uh, and and you know th- there's a difference between making a mistake and and deliberately avoiding evidence. Do you, just
1: one final question on make lockdowns history. Are you planning to have a, a charter at the end of it? Are you planning to have some central consensus document that that provides a way forward? Because there are potentially going to be a lot of people who get behind it. What we need is, is things to happen differently pretty soon. Otherwise, we're going to carry on on a merry-go-round that is going to tear up society even further. Um, so, so, what is the plan in terms of the the end game
0: of, of the one day? Great question. So, so you know, the, the important thing is we're not just going to sit there and, and pre- present the problems. We we are also presenting a series of solutions that we believe can can uh, alter the course of this um, pandemic or other otherwise to describe. Um, uh, and we want people to then sign. Uh, our open letter to, to say that this is this this we subscribe to this view we 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 opt out from the current uh, mechanism and we we wish to see this type of methodology um, move forward. So that's the first step is really to 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 garner public support for a for for a, a change uh, in approach. Uh, but beyond that, we are looking at how we begin to because this is an introductory event. There's only so much you can do in one day. Um, we, we are we are then looking at how we can create the frameworks for. Uh, the types of um, independent investigations that that we 've described through Nuremberg, how we can create the conditions for that, how we can start to explore the frameworks of potential uh, treaties um, but but the first step bef- before that is is, is is to get our evidence heard uh, to get it uh, hopefully spread through the media. We want the media to participate in this debate and actually start sharing uh, different different viewpoints, but ultimately garnering public support for Uh, A change in in approach which will hopefully then lead to um, uh, uh, the the types of uh, investigations that we've referred to here Um, but it's just the beginning uh, at this point. Uh,
1: Absolutely that I think the idea of getting engagement is critical otherwise we're at risk of having another great Barrington declaration it's got 800,000 public signatures it's got over 40,000 doctors but it's had zero impact because the establishment has just said no thank you so here, the, the the big shift is that you're looking at at getting direct engagement from from actors on all sides of the fence, essentially. And Absolutely. and potentially we need more and more people on the inside to be waking up, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. Yeah, that's why the actual physical event. You know, we're we hand you know, handpicking journalists, policymakers, sage. You know, we want them in the room. You know, we, we're very hopeful. Uh, you know the prospect of a free lunch for a journalist. You know, hopefully, I know some of my friends in that world. Um, I joke, a joke, but joking aside, we need people in the room. We need people to pay attention because this debate has has been long suppressed, uh, and I, it's our hope that during this period of time that we can we can open up that conversation and garner and make pub- them make
1: them accountable. Um, you can perhaps just finish on this. How do you make Matt Hancock accountable?
0: <laughs> uh, I, I, firstly, I cannot believe that he's still in position. Um, you know, the, from what, from Dominic, what...
1: Dominic Cummings can't either, but uh, no. it's just like water off a duck's back.
0: I, I mean, I think he'll ultimately, make, he will ultimately be made the scapegoat for everything that once this investigation does take place. You know, even Cummings said that, you know, he's, they were in a discussion saying he'll be the fall guy, but we shouldn't have to tolerate uh, someone of his position throughout this response. And, and the reality is, you know, I've talked about changing mindset and approach you know, whether you're looking at the political system or otherwise, unless you actually change the leadership, you're unlikely to change the approach. So I, I think there has to be there has to be some systemic changes before uh, before long in order to move this forward. So in the first instance, I do think uh, in terms of a separate activist campaign and that there does need to be a campaign which holds Matt Hancock accountable with his job. I think he needs to be, he needs to go. Um, uh, but he's one wheel in the. He's one cog in a very big machine. Um, he's a very prominent cog, uh, he, and I think he—he, he, 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 you know, if you look at—I touched upon the Stanford Prison Experiment. I think if you look, if you could watch that film and or, or read the study, you can see what side of that equation he's fallen on. Um, and yeah. uh, and he's,
1: a, but he's also a potentially dispensable cog, um, and that's very useful for the system. So. Um, um, it's a good note to end on. Dan, um, <laughs> I really we're gonna help you get the word out on make lockdowns history. It's a fantastic initiative. We're certainly gonna get behind it. We're gonna help you get as many people there as possible. Amazing. Um, it's great that you're doing physically as well as virtually because gee, those of us who've who, you know been on the conference circuit for many years, it is uh, we can start to see how certain actions don't get catalyzed unless humans get together. This, this virtual living is having so many impacts you look at what's happening with children's education as well but uh, yes human beings are social animals so congratulations on on making it happen thank um, you. and um, let's get
0: the word out so dan thank you so much for joining us on speaking My pleasure. Naturally. thank you so much great. for having me great to see you again rob thank you again yeah cheers then bye cheers.